Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September, what is the date? 18th, uh, 2020, uh, era of Rosh Hashanah. So happy new year to, uh, to all my, uh, to all my peeps out there. Uh, I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary with me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Noah Rothman is off today. So it is just the three of us. Uh, to discuss all kinds of uh, interesting uh, material uh, in Christine's wheelhouse. I want to begin, though I, I said I was going to begin with something else, but something that I sent you guys earlier uh, this morning, which is a quote from an article by Alex Ross, who is the music classical music critic of The New Yorker, uh, and probably now the dean of classical music criticism in the United States. States, and I'm now looking for this. I'm sorry, I should have done this better. Um, so he has written a piece about uh, systemic racism in the classic world of classical music, the need to make sure that uh, more uh, players and orchestras are people of color, and that uh, work by uh, uh, black uh, classical composers is more uh, performed. And all of that f- relatively conventional stuff since the uh, uh, outbreak of the, you know, uh, the, our, our new consciousness about these issues uh, in the wake of the George Floyd killing. But I wanted to read Christine as a as a uh, one time professional classical musician. Uh, uh, I wanted to read a passage to you from this uh, piece in The New Yorker by the Dean of Classical Music Critics in the United States and have you respond to it. Quote, The whiteness of classical music is above all an American problem. The racial and ethnic makeup of the canon is hardly surprising given European demographics before the 20th century. But when that tradition was transplanted to the multicultural United States, it blended into the racial hierarchy that had governed the country from its founding. The white majority tended to adopt European music as a badge of its supremacy. The classical music institutions that emerged in the mid and late 19th century, the New York Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony, the Metropolitan Opera and the like, became temples to European gods. Little as as Lawrence Levine argued in his 1988 book, Highbrow Lowbrow, quote, little effort was made to cultivate American composers. It seemed more important to manufacture a fantasy of Beethovenian grandeur. So, um... Uh, Europeans, it's fine for Europe, uh, which created the classical music canon because, you know, they're all white. But here in the United States, there were black people, and therefore we, our classical music tradition is one of white supremacy, but you can't say that. A Wagner. Uh would you care to um, reflect on this? <laughs> sure. Oh, reflect, not rant. Okay, I'll reflect. Um, the it's it's a kind of perfect distillation of two trends that I think conservatives are quite familiar with, but more and more Americans are becoming aware of uh, these days. One is this this weird insistence by otherwise intelligent people uh, to impose on the past the kind of uh, rigor, rigorous standards for uh, racial equity that we now insist must must be the way going forward. So Ross, who's, who's quite uh, astute guy, uh, whose criticism I've long read and enjoyed, is imposing a kind of weird standard on America's past. And, and it overlooks a huge history of how America's classical music, um, which is now an industry, began, which was from a position of deep inferiority towards its European peers. I mean, American orchestras were not considered the equal of, of uh, Europe's orchestras until the well into the 20th century, and probably by some European standards still aren't. But the idea that the the performances of these orchestras should be entirely, you know, native, uh, natively created music makes no sense, because the whole standard that was always set for excellence was one that over centuries of musical development emerged in Europe, and, and which was then transplanted in the U.S., it's, it's a standard of excellence that was reached because the music that, that 
one out on top is amazing. So I played the bassoon right in there. It's not a solo instrument. It's a very comical sort of uh, instrument, adds a lot of color to the orchestra. But you end up playing a lot of Baroque music. And there's so much Baroque music that never rose to the level of, you know, Bach, for example, or any of the stuff that we now think of as the canon of Baroque music. There's a, always a lot of, you know, flotsam and jetsam produced that, that, that doesn't last through the ages. So the idea that the stuff that we now perform was some effort at, at, you know, white supremacy on the part of American orchestras is ridiculous. It's simply that the good stuff rose to the top. Now, does that mean that we should overlook new music? No. Um, and American orchestras have have uh, struggled in decades past to, to kind of come to terms with modern music. You know, Stravinsky's first performance of the Rites of Spring was, you know, panned as being horrible because it was so atonal and um it's it's so much fun to perform if you're a musician it's a it, i love stravinsky but a lot of people didn't love stravinsky when he was first performed so the idea that this natural development of taste and culture is just another story of white supremacy is the same error in judgment that the 1619 project makes about america's founding right it imposes a standard in the present day on the past and as a result it overlooks the nuance and the beauty of a lot of what we do consider our musical canon um and then, you know, of course, our greatest export is jazz. And we have actually, we do have a lot of uh, styles of music in, that are that are deeply American, uh, rock and roll as well, that we have exported then back to Europe. So it's not as if this isn't an exchange that goes on in a lot of different genres. So I was so disappointed to read that because I've, you know, I've really enjoyed a lot of Ross's criticism, but I guess he seems going forward, his this is how he's going to justify being a white male critic in, in this day and age is, is to beat that drum. And it, it doesn't help illuminate anything about classical music, unfortunately. And it denigrates a canon that we shouldn't denigrate, just like the Western canon in literature. Uh, it's a dangerous trend. And, and it disturbs me that he's writing this kind of thing. So um, as I, if I'm right, the first major American classical composer was Charles Ives, who mm-hmm began uh, producing serious music in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, By this point, uh, African-American musicians like Scott Joplin, for example, were already producing work that you can argue from this vantage point is more enduring and more important than Charles Ives's music or than almost all of the classical music produced in the United States from then until now. Um, and that you have in the realm of American music, you have, uh, both, I would say black and Jewish profoundly minority groups, uh, producing the most memorable American music. And the idea that we are now to retrofit this 2020 idea that only representational in from field to field to field, that what matters is numerical representation, both in output and in performance that this is the only way that we can measure fairness, unfairness, racism, or lack of racism, um, is mind-boggling. Because if there is any world in which, for for the only time in recorded history, as far as I can tell, uh, an entire created world of music, which is jazz comes almost exclusively in its origins out of a oppressed small community of people who break, nonetheless, break through in Memphis and Kansas City and New Orleans to uh, have this music emerge out of, you know, uh, their uh, oppressive lives and transform the world and become a major musical form and it's just kind of belittled. Uh, in some ways, you could say, by the way, more popular. I mean, I think maybe not in its purest forms, but more popular than classical music uh, with greater uh, greater international spread and 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 effect and 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 influence over the over the century past. Um, 
And yet this is a white supremacist country that, uh, that, that somehow su- oppressed and suppressed black classical music. I mean, Scott Joplin wrote an opera called Tremonitia. I mean, you know, which is a, which is a remarkable piece of work, which emerged. He was a, he was a song plugging, you know, ragtime songwriter and, 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 and made the bread. I mean, it's just, but my this jaw is, drops. But I think that the their response is not to. They would probably agree with everything you've just said about about certainly about jazz and and uh, other you know, other forms of music that have developed uh, in the U.S. The real effort, which I think they're trying to overlay here, is is to bring down what used to be elevated. It's a leveling effect, right? It's really not enough to make sure that we all perform enough Joplin and that we recognize jazz's great cultural impact. You have to bring classical music down. And that's a real difference because I do think this, this and we're seeing this across many cultural forms, right? What used to be a kind of concerted, sometimes annoying, sometimes hyperbolic effort to say, no, we need more voices. We need to have, you know, we need to do the bean counting and making sure every race is represented in this field and that field. It was annoying, but there wasn't an effort to tear down what was already there. And that indeed is what's happening now. And I think that's a shift that is a lot more worrisome. It speaks to some of the trends that Abe outlined in his piece in the magazine last month. It's a revolutionary point of view because it has destruction comes first and then there's a rebuilding. But again, the question always is, what do you rebuild? If we get rid of all performances of Beethoven and Bach and Tchaikovsky and, you know, the entire canon, uh, what do you replace it with? What Glo- global, global music. Um, right. That, <laughs> no, really, because this, yeah. this dovetails with, I, I just watched this um, video essay, this recent video essay that's gone somewhat viral about how music theory um, is uh, also white supremacist and music theory is based on uh, you know European classical music, and it is exactly as Christine says. Um, there is it is not only an effort to claim that um, we are uh, all racists, but that the greats um, that we recognize as greats were, as 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 one musicologist in the video says, Be- Beethoven was an above average composer. You know, and so the and the idea is that why are we only um, looking at music through this European framework? Um, why aren't we um, studying, um, say, Indian raga uh, theory um, as much, and uh, so on? But, but to which I say, who's who's stopping anyone from studying anything? So and people do as if. By the way, when we do, I mean, you know, uh, to take raga, for example, when that is incorporated into Western music, and it has been extensively, um, that's cultural appropriation, isn't it? Yes. You you know, um, uh, Stanley Crouch died this week. Stanley Crouch was a a very idiosyncratic, very, uh, that's a bad English, idiosyncratic by definition, very... um, uh, a kind of uh, fascinating, uh, idiosyncratic figure, writer, intellectual, a black nationalist who then renounced black nationalism and uh, had very much an integrationist aesthetic, except when it came to art. And this was a very interesting aspect of him uh, to bring up I- in relation to this, because he would have had no truck with Black Lives Matter, and he would have had no truck with this uh, notion that America was governed by white supremacy. Why? In part because of his very interesting and, and uh, often very uh, nasty views about uh, jazz and the understanding of jazz. Um, and his understanding of jazz, and he was a, a deeply influential person over the most important jazz musician of the last 50 years, um, Wynton Marsalis, who ran, who runs and ran jazz at Lincoln Center, which was the first serious kind of jazz orchestra in the United States, an institution for jazz. Um, his, his idea was that uh, jazz didn't need white gatekeepers. Jazz didn't need, uh, did not need uh, miscegenation or sort of like uh, the clumping together of white and black. It was an it was an American indigenous art form that arose out of a specific community that had the right to claim it, and that not everything had to come out of this, um, you know, out of out of 
like I say, sort of miscegenated culture in which whites and blacks and everybody got to claim it, that it was, it was something real and serious and enduring and powerful and passionate on its own. And that it, and that its roots and its real purposes were disguised by a kind of liberal universalist ethos that, that denied it its true foundations as a black um, art form. And, and what would be interesting, I think, in that case is that uh, Stanley, uh, whom I knew a little bit, would have, you know, read, uh, read this piece by Alex Ross and would have scoffed and scorned and laughed at it because black people don't need classical me. You know, it's like one of these things. It's like, I can only value this if it, if it, if it has its, you know, if it has its numerical, representation you know in the pot if 12 percent of musicians are black if 12 percent of the repertory played by the by the uh you know classical music industry uh is black then that's fine if it's not it's 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 white supremacy um uh that 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 makes that is not how you judge art it's not how you judge artistic tradition it's in fact the enemy and the death of art as it stands and it's just i think an interesting juxtaposition well i also i also want to point out and we 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 say this every time but i i think it's worth repeating because you always should take the logical revolutionary the, go to the logical conclusion with whatever revolutionary proposal is being made. And in this case, by this standard, it it can't just affect classical music, right? So we're going to have, if we're going to have a lot less Vivaldi in classical music, we're going to have a lot more vanilla ice in popular music. Because if you're going to do this bean counting, there are certain forms that are dominated by minority uh, minorities. And so again, like if the principle holds, if this is actually a principle then it has to be applied uh, across across the board. But uh, as you say, John, that would be the death of art. And, uh, you know, more than one vanilla ice on this earth is, is enough of a death of art. So I don't want to encourage that. But I'm just saying the principle should hold across many other genres if this is the case. Right. And I mean, it, it, we've talked about this over the over the months, and I, I myself have said that I think that uh, some of the ways in which the cultural gatekeepers of the United States have viewed uh, the uh, commercial cultural prospects of certain types of popular art in particular, um, you know, downgrading the possibility of sort of movies, uh, let's say, or television shows that are uh, concentrate on black people because white people aren't going to watch them and Chinese people aren't, you know, they're going to have trouble in the international market and all of this. And that basically um, uh, that's based on theories and ideas about race uh, that I think have been conclusively dis- disproven by by results, and that you then have to question why it was so important for these cultural gatekeep producers, whatever studio executives, to believe in this. And I think that's where you that's where you can see a certain level where where some of the criticism can start to bite. That it's not the result of, you know, unconscious bias and built in this and that it's that this isn't in their wheelhouse. They don't like it because they don't understand it, or it's not something that they're comfortable with or that they particularly want to watch. And so they develop large scale theories to explain why they don't want to play in that playground or why they don't want to build in that neighborhood, let's say. And they start saying, well, white people don't like it, but it's actually that they don't like it and they don't like it because they don't know how to judge it. And they don't know how to judge it because they have no cultural imagination and because they are frat boys who, you know, came out of a neighborhood and went to some college and then they got a job in a mailroom and then they ended up becoming a studio executive. And so it's not, you know, they know their their own stuff. They know they want to make friends in the 1990s because they're one of the friends. You know, they don't want to make living single. This is the, uh, my friend Rob Long's joke is that uh, the series Friends was preceded by a show about six New Yorkers living single in an apartment, you know, in an apartment building a year before, but nobody paid any attention to it because the people on the show were black. <laughs> so um, well, and, the, and the pressure, I, the, you're right that the pressure that can be brought to bear on particular industries to sort of no, just notice other markets from a sheer economic standpoint is valuable. I mean, this happened in the cosmetics industry, um, in fact, and in in sort of the women's beauty industry where, you know, a lot of women of color stepped up and were like, okay, so 
I'm just trying to find makeup that I can put on my skin so that I don't look ridiculous. And you don't offer shades of my skin color. And there was a real push. I mean, again, you know, it was taken to an extreme by kind of ideologues, but regular women were like, here's a, here's a need the market should fill. And eventually the market fills it. And what a lot of these companies, and there's the same is true for, you know, I'd like to look at a model that doesn't look exactly like, you know, all the Christy Brinkley's of the world. And they have responded to that pressure, but that's a kind of give and take that that emerges organically from a need and a demand that then the market either satisfies or not. And to overcome the stuff you're saying, John, in the television industry, it'll be it'll be interesting to see if they do more than just this virtue signaling they've done so far and gotten away with. Uh, the Chinese market is slightly different because they actually do have extremely racist views of people with dark skin that that have, you know, their even advertisements for Star Wars didn't feature John Boyega because he's, you know, black. So that's a totally different thing. And that is an emerging huge market for a lot of these companies. But I think in the domestic context, you're absolutely right. There's no, it, it is a failure of vision on the part of these gatekeepers. Abe, you know, let me ask you this. So as, as I'm talking, it occurs to me that, that um, uh, the white supremacist uh, concept, right, which is that, or, or the 1619 white supremacist, which is that, you know, America is, is bad at its root and that we're all bathed in the amniotic fluid of white supremacy and that therefore it's uh, inescapable and it's, it, it, it pervades everything and it's in all our souls and in all our, and, and so even when we don't think we are, we don't do anything, it's, it's benefits one and hurts the other. Uh, that this this functions as a giant excuse, not just for the idea that uh, you know, sort of an excuse for, um, but that it, it don't blame me. It's white supremacy. Don't blame me that my that eight percent of the movies directed in the United States are directed by men or not by people of color or whatever. Blame whites. Blame the culture that I grew up in. Blame blame the atmosphere. I didn't do it. I'm not responsible for it. I just am a robot, programmed robot of my culture. And uh, and yeah, it should change. But then if it's going to change, I don't even have to change. It all has to be changed around me and everybody do it too so that I don't do it because I'm actually somebody who is in a position to take some responsibility and actually make these changes myself. Right. As if... Uh... As if white supremacy is is a sort of is a pervasive substance that's just in the atmosphere yeah. that's not not connected to 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 uh, anyone's um, anyone's wills. And also, by the way, that excuse works um, uh, sort of both ways. In that, okay, if you want to get um, minority classical composers in the game, right? Or if you want, you know, uh, current music students who are minorities to be, to be involved and recognized, um, and encouraged, let's say, um, well, the surest way to kill that off is to, uh, write, you know, 10 articles about how classical music is a racist white supremacist endeavor. That's, that's the end, right? Then you're, you've, you've made it that you've sealed it off as this um, terrible, terrible, bigoted enterprise, and um, there will be no, there will there will be no inclusion. There's also uh, the other thing at play, particularly in I think the classical music realm, is um, a failure. And this is a great American conceit that spreads across many uh, areas, but in this case, is quite true. Most people don't have what it takes to become professional, you know, top tier level performers. Um, it's an extremely small group that actually makes it to that level. And that's true in almost all industries. But in this one in particular, the idea that every kid who, you know, plays the recorder in third grade and then like picks up a band instrument in fourth grade is going to become Yo-Yo Ma. It's just not true. Talent, unfortunately, that kind of, of talent is a gift in the same way that beauty is a gift. Some people are bestowed with a ton of it and some of us get very little <laughs> and we try to make the best of it. But this idea, this American idea that everyone can rise to the level of absolute excellence in, in any field they choose, it's not true. We don't, but we like the conceit because it actually does serve a kind of nice, optimistic, motivating purpose. But in these situations, I think that gets totally lost as well. Most white people aren't Beethoven either. Most, you know, it, it, it's just, it's this idea of excellence. Um, excellence is possible, but talent is not ever going to be equally distributed. I mean, talent doesn't even begin to describe. I mean, look, if we talk about, you know, uh, people who play in 
orchestras. First of all, you know, this is a shrinking field, right? I mean, it's like they're half the number, they're half the orchestras that there were in the United States 40 years ago. Um, we'll be lucky to have 10 or 12 surviving orchestras in the United States over the next 10 years, not only because of the disasters of COVID, but because uh, these institutions simply don't have audiences anymore. And there's less and less philanthropic support directed toward them outside of, you know, two or three main metropolitan areas. And even there, union contracts and things are, are killing them off. But, you know, it is a little like, uh, I don't know, tennis or golf. I mean, these are individual sports. So there you have, like, you're talking about a world of a thousand people, 2000 people in the United States who can make their livings as classical musicians and when we say livings we don't even mean like great livings we mean like a solidly... no they're teaching on the side and doing yeah. all kinds of other gigs all summer when the orchestra's yeah. off no it's not yeah yes yeah. and 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 so and the the stars of whom there are also way fewer than there used to be i mean 40 years ago you could name 15 major classical musicians who had star power, not quite at the level of a, you know, of an international movie star, but pretty clear were some who certainly did. Pavarotti was the equal, if not the superior to most famous people on earth. Uh, but even so, they're freaks. I mean, a, a serious classical musician perform, and then a composer a, a classical composer whose work is worthy of being played by an orchestra. I mean, these are these are freakish people. Like Tiger Woods is a freak. Like there are in any given generation, there are twenty of them, or twenty five of them. There aren't two thousand. There aren't fifty thousand of them. You know, even using that, even saying, well, you know, we need representation in classical music. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. By the way, great. Jazz music, you know, Louis Armstrong could, under different circumstances, of course, been, a, you know, a great woodwind player in a classical orchestra. I mean, he was a genius musician. He would have been a genius musician in whatever field that he that he took up. But, um, yeah, this sort of democratic notion, it's like, well, you know, we need an, we need an oboist. So we'll just all things being we'll just find you know a black guy or a, or 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 a female uh, or a black female or a black female trans person or a black female trans person in a wheelchair. There may be one in the United States. I'm not joking. It's not like there are two thousand, and then you can sort of pick one out. Well, and it's my little sister was a professional oboist for many years, so I have a, a particular skin in this game. It's not just if you find someone who's willing to put in the hard work and has enough of the natural talent to get to that level, you have to keep them. So she was in a Midwestern orchestra for a long time. It struggled, you know, they had a lot of trouble keeping, you know, keeping it going. Um, she eventually just, she could have stayed there. She eventually tired of it and went back to school to become a lawyer because she wanted a more consistent, you know, reliable income. So even if you can get those people, it, it's tough. It's a really tough business. It's a really tough business. And I feel in some ways, especially given how tough it is for orchestras, classical musicians and orchestras right now, that the, the Alex Ross piece is particularly egregious because it's like hitting them while they're down. I mean, that's the part of it that really upsets me because they really are struggling and have been. And so to kind of now pick up this new cudgel and start whacking them with it seems ungracious. You know, John, <laughs> it occurs to me what you're saying is, and I think this is true, that when you're talking about these extraordinary classical musicians and other people in these fields, you're already talking about a minority that is so much smaller than any ethnic minority yeah. right. <laughs> that, you could, yeah. that you could want to appeal to. Yeah. Look, so it makes no sense. Yeah. Look, in 1960, here's the other thing to think about, because I mentioned Louis Armstrong, right? 1960, if you were Itzhak Perlman... And you become a classical musician, you become world famous and, and, and you know, a, a, a signal cultural figure all across the world and an inspiration to millions and, you know, uh, and, a, and a, a sort of great, great man. Uh, and if you were Itzhak Perlman's family in 2010, uh, the last thing you'd want with that kind of musical talent for him to 
to have the same cultural impact would be to be a classical musician. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, like he should do something else. He should, he should go into, I mean, obviously he's a violinist, so you go into rap, you know, as a violinist, but you know what I'm saying? Like he should, he would, he, this is not the world that you would choose for him uh, to make his mark in because as I say, it is a shrinking, declining world and yeah and then to take it and then apply this screen to it as it is as it is you know um going down uh is to is to do it you know hard, just for your own purposes of uh you know make of of sending up virtual signaling and trying to say no one should uh, no one should try to um you know, uh, accuse me, white music critic, of not being part of the new cultural consensus. So why don't we move on from that to the actual new, you know, so like the biggest news story of the day, um, which is the Trump administration announcing that beginning Sunday, the Chinese uh, program, the Chinese communications program, WeChat, uh, is basically being banned in the United States and that TikTok, the uh, short video fun channel uh, that has become sort of like a dominating force in the lives of young people in the United States, uh, is basically headed that way, though if they can find a a way to sell it off that uh, passes muster, um, by November 12th, uh, it will be spared the total sort of deplatforming that the Commerce Department is, uh, is imposing on WeChat and, and a little bit on, on it, um, on, on TikTok, uh, using on national security grounds. Christine, uh, we have actually published, um, one piece about TikTok by Rob Long, whom I just mentioned, uh, praising TikTok as a positive cultural force um, uh, and sweet and nice uh, in, in its in its cultural application, uh, not as a form of social media. But Christine, as a as a, as our resident uh, uh, Luddite uh, enemy of social media <laughs> and general and, and and no fan of China, please. <laughs> I love that introduction. Um, Thank you. Uh, no, so so to Rob's point, actually, he's the cultural stuff he's right about. And what I would say to that is that you don't need TikTok to have that positive cultural impact. Any other, someone can create something similar that doesn't have the you know Chinese state government behind it um, and have the same effect. This is what interests me about this this news is that it it's we we talk a lot about saying out loud what people think. I mean, this is showing very starkly the concern with these apps, and they we should be concerned. Um, it's not just that they the location data alone, which is tracked by WeChat and by TikTok, uh, should concern people. The there's also a fair amount of your browsing history and what you're looking at. They can see it all. So one of the one of the uh, administration officials likened it to a window, as if the commun- the Chinese Communist Party has a window. It's just watching from look it in your window. There's no blinds on that window. If you're using WeChat and TikTok, they're watching it all, and they're doing this with your own consent because you downloaded this app and use it. So, if as to the legality, I'll leave it to the you know the uh, uh, communications and technologies lawyers to parse out whether this is actually something that legally the administration can do. But as as far as sending a message about the dangers of some of this technology, I wholly support that message because we should not be using TikTok, and we should you know certainly if you work in any sort of uh, industry or in the government, you shouldn't have this on your phone and you shouldn't be using it because the amount of information that you're giving off. We often talk about digital exhaust, the little bit of stuff that we're constantly emitting, walking around using our phones. This is like a, you know, a, a nuclear reactor meltdown fallout every time everyone uses it in terms of the information you're willingly given to uh, to a government that has no interest in protecting your privacy and plenty of interest in tracking what American citizens are doing. Yeah, so I'm pretty much on board with this, assuming it's legal. But that I'll leave to the lawyers. Yeah, I, I like it very much. To be honest, it's hard for me not to. Um, also, in part because you know we've been talking about cracking down on um, Chinese espionage on 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 China's sort of state private hybrid um, shenanigans. Um, 
um, uh, really uh, infiltration in a lot of ways in terms of um, um, uh, marketplace and uh, privacy. We talk about it so much, and there there has that it has the, it's gotten this sort of air of well, it's, we're never really going to move forward on any of this, right? It's it's sort of too giant uh, a behemoth, and um, to to actually make a move would upset things too massively for us to really countenance. And this is just like a sort of flicking the switch saying, nope, here we go. We, we are, we are actually doing it. And there's something um, very heartening about that, d- despite um, the inevitable fallout and pushback we're going to get from it. I, you know, I, I don't know how much pushback we're going to get because you have a kind of weird uh, um, coming together of various uh, ideas and trends that kind of transcend uh, uh, political partisan boundaries. Um, uh, tr- Trump, of course, very anti-China, uh, even though he made a great trade deal. But now he's anti-China again because, or he says it was a great trade deal because of the virus. Um, so, uh, uh, and of course, there's this whole notion of um, uh, Trump having been cavalier about the virus because he tried listened to President G and what he said, and this is something that Democrats are are trumpeting. So there is uh, now a sort of bipartisan we don't like China mood uh, in the United States. Um, so taking action against these uh, Chinese enterprises, I, I don't know how much pushback there's going to be sim- simultaneously. Uh, the obvious complaint is. The U.S. government shouldn't be shutting down, com- you know, shouldn't shouldn't shut down vehicles of expression, uh, even if they're claiming that there's a national security reason. Like that's not a good enough reason. And what about free speech and all of that? But of course, Democrats are now very bad on the speech on speech issues. They believe in cancel culture. They believe in shutting people down. Or liberals, let's say, liberal culture has lost its you know, absolutist connection to sort of free speech and the notion that, you know, government has no business interfering in platforms. They want Facebook hurt. They want, you know, they want all this, they want all this action taken against social media platforms for supposedly destroying our democracy. And so they are, I don't know what position they're in to give Trump pushback. I myself find that while I am am very much with a in sympathy with this notion that we need to take China's threat seriously and have been very much on this side since I presided over a special issue of the Weekly Standard in 1996 about how China was the rising and most important threat to the West. That was almost 25 years ago. Um, I'm very discomfited by the idea that the government says, well, on the grounds of national security, these businesses are shut down. American consumers will be denied access. Americans will be denied access to them. But as far as I can tell, that's a pretty lonely position. But I mean, the skepticism about the federal government invoking national security to to you know limit civil liberties is always healthy, and we should always encourage that kind of skepticism. I think in this case, though. Um, the real pushback comes from the timing and the political polarization at this moment right before an election. So there's a part of me that wishes this had happened, you know, a year ago. And there were, you know, there were there were murmurings about this before, but we've known this danger from the beginning, but nobody in the administration took it seriously enough to do anything about it till now. So now it seems like a political move, and there's a lot of conspiracy theorizing already about why Trump is doing it now. Um, just as there's plenty of conspiracy theorizing on the right about the fact that, for example, Twitter's chief, one of Twitter's chief uh, folks just left to join the Biden transition team because there are, you know, there's a lot of skepticism to go around. I do think, though, in this case, the national security threat is genuine. Um, Other countries have acknowledged it, including the UK. Um, We know from what we've when when you look at if you if you go backwards and look at how this how these apps work, particularly with TikTok, it's very clear that the the opacity is built in for a reason. It's not just it's a feature, not a bug. Um, And for all of those reasons, I think in this particular case, it is a useful uh, thing to consider. Um, but you're right, John, I think to con- that that should always be the first question is, is this really just, is this national security or is this just a power grab or mission creep of some other sort? Okay. So, uh, moving on last night, 
uh, Joe Biden faced uh, voters in a very attractively, oddly set up drive-in town hall uh, where uh, they, he and Anderson Cooper were, I guess, on a stage and uh, and everybody was like in their cars asking questions from, I've been to a couple of these pop-up drive-ins at various places uh, over the summer and uh, and it's a, it's fun. It looked good. I thought looked actually looked like a, a very, uh, you know, it's, it's a model to follow in the future to get in more interesting settings for these kinds of events. Um, and of course the question with Biden is always, uh, you know, was he going to go gaga and, 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 and look like he couldn't hold up and, you know, open up a new, uh, you know, some can of worms about his fitness for, for office. Um, that's one question. The other question was how on earth, uh, were the questioners, these ordinary voter questioners, uh, following up on Trump doing this on ABC on, on Monday night or Tuesday night, um, where the questioning was very harsh and they were supposedly uncommitted voters, uh, on ABC. Uh, and as I think I said, you know, they seem to be uncommitted between, you know, between Biden and Mao or Biden and Stalin. That's how uncommitted they were. Um, and that was clearly not the case last night. So Abe, uh, you watched it. I watched it. Uh, what was, what was your takeaway on both of these issues about the relative fairness of the way Biden was treated versus the way Trump was treated and, and, and Biden's performance? Um, I thought Biden's performance was, um, really surprisingly good. Um, he was very solid, uh, he was as fluid um, in in his speaking as he can be. Um, um, he recollected a great number of relevant facts. Um, he seemed sort of um, very intent about doing so. I mean, he was sort of you know going into detail about the different types of potential uh, COVID vaccines and how one affects the cells and one affects the immune system. You know, as a sort of um, over demonstration that he that he is all there you know it was kind of you know this it was almost cute um it reminded me of this sketch this snl sketch in 2000 about the about the debates between gore and and bush where in the sort of the, the version of the second debate Bush starts saying, I just want to mention some names of foreign leaders. <laughs> right. And he was like, you know, President Barasabahalaha right. from the Mozambique. You know, that right. like, yes, yeah. yeah. That was what Biden was like with that. Hey, you know, um, there's the viral, uh, there's the viral cure, and then there's the uh, cellular, the RNA cure. Although I have to say, you know, he had some moment. I mean, that was somewhat undermined by the fact that he actually lost he couldn't remember the word for mailbox at a certain point but um that see was, but i could do that i think that's something that i i'm, I'm not even 60 yet I, I i i go up on words fair enough in terms of the um like the 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 questioning i mean what struck me first off was that literally the first five six seven people that spoke all had some awful tragedy um, in their life. And that was woven into the question. They had lost someone. They had lost several people. They had lost a job or they themselves were, were very sick or were, had some precondition that kept them from. And so there is this continued effort to make Biden the sort of mourner in chief, um, which I, he embraces and everyone seems to like it. I, I, I find it cloying and weird and depressing. Um, but uh, and the but the questions were all I think with the exception of like one, um, um, remarkably um, easy and friendly to him. There was there was there was a question about from a, a, a female uh, farmer and Trump voter um, that um, kind of sort of got to him a little that sort of uh, pierced its way through and. Um, when when she when she was introduced as a Trump voter, um, Biden uh, said to her, "How you feeling now?" You know, as a sort of uh, a jab, and she didn't. It was it was it was wrong. It didn't make sense because it wasn't. She wasn't going down the the road of. And now I'm disappointed in my Trump vote. 
Um, well, it was funny, by the way, because um, the exact same thing happened between her and Biden that it happened that happened uh, with Trump with uh, some a voter where both both the questioners at some point said, "Will you not interrupt me? Right? Can I finish my point?" Which, of course, was seen as a great stab at Trump by, you know, by the Twitterati, you know, he really, she let him have it because he interrupted her. Yeah. And I saw no such praise for the Well, for in the both Trump cases, vote. it was a man-interrupting situation, right? It was a man yeah. interrupting a woman, which is a right. big no-no. Can I just yeah. say to that, to Abe's point, I think what struck me about, uh, yes, he, he was, he was like, Mr. I don't need a teleprompter. I'm so proud of myself. Uh, and his energy level was very high. But what I'm still questioning is that side of Biden that those of us who've, who've watched him for many, many years know comes out. And we saw it here and there in the primary. He's quite thin skinned when challenged. And I think the fact that they're not putting him in situations where he's being directly challenged, he's going to have to exercise enormous discipline in the debates. And maybe he'll be able to do that. Um, He should be able to do it at this level. when he's going to be needled, he doesn't like to be needled, right? So when when someone's a le- even slightly belligerent with him in those settings, that's when he screamed at the guy like, yeah, look fat, you know, <laughs> remember there were all these, that, but there were like a handful of these moments where he really wasn't able to, to keep his cool. So I was struck by, I was actually hoping that they would plant someone in there who would kind of play act at needling him to show his, you know, look how, you know, his, his, his great uh, magnanimity, but that didn't happen. The, the questions were ridiculously easy and it's, it was quite a contrast to, to the town hall uh, situation that Trump faced. Well, yeah, but I, I mean, and, and it's interesting because um, Biden said one thing that if, uh, if there were uh, that could that could tell on him as as time goes on, although I, I don't really know because I don't know who was going to hold him to account. But he basically said that no one in this country should have died and that basically every death from covid was Trump's fault. I really I know that the most partisan Democrats and liberals who hate Trump so much really now believe believe that and that the Woodward books anecdote seems to have given them some kind of renewed commitment to this idea. And it is so insanely unfair and unjust that a, that a, a more, a fleet, a better person who, who, who is in a different position in relation to these things from Trump could do a, there you go, could do, you know, do a Reagan, there you go again. Really, I killed two hundred thousand people. Well, and especially because I, they're they're giving Trump such pushback for noting that it was more blue state. Blue states have had more deaths from COVID than red states. That they were like, "That is horrible! How dare he? We're all Americans." And yet, if we're all Americans, how does Biden get away with saying all the blood's on Trump's hands? Right? Yeah. I mean, that the, the double standard here is real and kind of stunning. Yeah, but, yes, but yeah, speaking yeah. of double standards, brother, there was also there was another massive bald-faced lie that that Biden uh, told last night on the matter of Afghanistan um, where he actually said that I want to I want to bring the the troop the number of troops down Trump wants to <laughs> Trump wants to raise it raise yeah. the number of troops. I mean Trump wants out of Afghanistan yesterday yeah I mean we have we have the story of HR uh, McMaster his former national security advisor first leaks from his interview uh, with 60 Minutes on Sunday uh, in in advance of the release of his book next Tuesday, saying Trump is now effectively working with the Taliban against the government of Afghanistan in coming in trying to negotiate this uh, peace deal that, um, and, you know, McMaster says that uh, Afghanistan, that the that the terrorist support framework in Afghanistan, it's a weird thing to say, I'm sorry, uh, and I'm, I'm a big admirer of, 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 of H.R. McMaster's writing and thinking, but it's worse than in 2001, which is, which is crazy, because, of course, <laughs> Al-Qaeda was functioning, you know, as a, as a handmaiden of the, of the government of Afghanistan in 2001. But nonetheless... Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the complaint that's going to be issued is being issued from inside the House is that uh, Trump is throwing Afghanistan to the wolves, right. not that he's, you know, trying to keep the war going there. Um, uh, so the, the, those, those two things and then a couple of others. But I, I have to say, I really do, because I, I, I watched it with uh, deep skepticism about Biden. 
and that I, I thought his performance wasn't just good, but that it was kind of sensational, actually, despite I understand that the questioning was really sought, but that it was exactly the person that if you were if you were a person who was making had made the decision to go with Biden because of your head and not your heart as a Democrat because he was the best person situated to take on Trump because he had the requisite set of themes that might appeal to Trump voters in some fashion while not turning off liberals and all of that, that stuff. This was exactly the person that you wanted to see. And he had a couple of really amazing moments that I think uh, telegraph stuff that he might do to Trump that could really unnerve Trump, where he said, I'm sick and tired of this treatment of people claiming, you know, he said, like, I didn't go to an Ivy League school. You know, I keep hearing you're, you're all saying me and uh, Kamala Harris uh, will be the first ticket to go to Ivy League. What do I have to go to an Ivy League school for? To make me any worse than anybody else? And, you know, that is a telegraph of a possible hit on Trump, which is, I went to the University of Scranton. I was in the Senate in 20. I've been serving the American people since I was in my 20s. And your daddy bought you into Wharton. Yeah, but he also, I, I would say there's another, he also did the, you know, I'm Scranton versus Wall Street thing. And that is ridiculous. This guy has been representing, you know, Credit Card Inc. his entire time in the Senate. He's from Delaware. Like, that's where everybody goes yeah. to avoid being responsible financial entities. So, I mean, I, if Trump is savvy, he can respond and saying that is, that is a, that you're making a mockery of the idea that you're, you know, you've been in Washington at their, these people's behest for decades. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by Biden's, when Biden said the thing about uh, why do I have to go to an Ivy League school, you know, and that, um, you know, I, I've been looked down on, you know, by uh, by the elite uh, my whole life. The interesting thing about that whole answer was that was in response to a question on whether or not he believes there's systemic racism yeah. in, the, in the country. And he got he, he jumped off that off the question in like two seconds. He went from, uh, yes. And let me tell you about what I've been through as a white guy, right. which is, no, which but, is right. Kind but, of that's interesting, but, but what a, that was a preplanned purposeful yeah. answer floating. He is signaling that in the last month of the campaign, he is going to the, I, I he's going to be going to white working class neighborhoods and saying, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't go to some fancy pants college. You know, I I wasn't some fancy pants guy. I got into the I got into the Senate. My wife and daughter were killed. My sons were injured. I had to take the train home every night to put them to bed. And this guy is sitting there in this gilded palace, saying that saying that AIDS was his Vietnam and his rich daddy getting him into war, getting him into the Ivies because he wasn't good enough even to get into the Ivies by himself. So I'm not white privilege. He's white privilege. I'm not the guy who's, you know, and look, I don't know if it's going to, I don't know whether we had Chris Starwalt on yesterday who said, right, he said, people don't vote on policy. They're voting on people. And there are things that people still don't know about Biden and that the debate, assuming the debates are going to have the size of audience that we expect they will. And I think, you know, in, in, in 2008 or something, 90 million people or something like that watched the first debate between uh, Obama and, and McCain. I mean, some of these numbers, debate numbers can be like, well, and the, de- the debates also now have a half-life that goes well beyond the actual evening because everybody recycles clips and watches them on right. social media. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. right. Right. But uh, I'm saying, look, if he, if he, if they uh, debate is on the 29th of, uh, so it's like uh, 13 days till the debate or nine days, excuse me, nine days till the debate or something, 29th of, uh, whatever the hell the date is. <laughs> so 29th of September. And, you know, uh, he was clearly well-rested. He was extremely prepared. Uh, I think what it showed is that he can take a briefing and store a lot of information on the basis of that briefing. He knew facts and pieces of information, not just about the virus, but about pieces of legislation, history of the Obama administration, stuff like that, that he was able to repurpose and recycle. And, you know, the line we keep hearing about Trump is he's not preparing. He's not doing debate prep. He doesn't want to do debate prep and all that. He's just going to kind of be a, you know, he's going to improv uh, his way through. And Biden, 
the problem with that as a strategy is that it's very hard to know what he can hit Biden with that Biden won't be prepared for. You're old, you're tired, you're senile, you're crooked, your son uh, is, a, is, a, is, is crooked, you know, you, you're taking performance-enhancing drugs, uh, you know, you got 1% in your last couple of races. I mean, there's 10,000 things you could say that Trump every night throws at him that he can have prepared answers for with zingers and stuff like that, which is, you know... Uh, and if Trump isn't like holding stuff back so that he knows what he's going to get hit with, we know the single worst debate moment of the last, I don't know, 10 years was, uh, was, uh, Marco Rubio, um, was, was Christie going at Marco Rubio when Marco, he knew that Marco Rubio was going to say this thing about, um, whatever the hell it was that he said that I can't remember because he had said it five times before that Obama was acting with forethought in his right. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's not, uh, you know, let's, yeah, let's not, uh, labor under the delusion that Obama was right. Okay. Um, but we, he knew that because, because Rubio had been saying it 10 times. And so, uh, he, Christie lay in wait and, nailed him and Rubio froze. Um, and that could happen to Trump. Uh, you know, I, it could happen to Trump, but I have to say that, and as someone who readily admits that Biden was very impressive last night, um, I, I still wonder if he will be as impressive when he has to improvise to some degree when you're in a, in a debate. It's, it's not the exact same thing. And, and he could get flustered. He really could. He could. And Christine's right. And he is, he is, um, a lot of those events though, I will say like the, Hey fat and that stuff, those are all after like seven hours of wandering around some state fair, like how any of those people manage to maintain their, their cool when, you know, I mean, well, I don't know. We're demanding that our law enforcement officers do that on the daily with people, yeah. you know, telling them they're going to rape their wives. So right. I think yeah. Joe Biden right. can handle it. <laughs> I, I, no, I, I'm sure he can. Uh, that's and by the way, Biden's answer on policing—that was one of the reasons I thought, oh boy, Trump's in trouble. Well, the memos obviously he going said around. the overwhelming yeah. majority of the police officers in this country are fine, upstanding people who do a good job. He did not waver on that at all, um, and just as he didn't waver on that, and just as he endorsed fracking. So, you know, because basically it looked like Pennsylvania was going to be out of his reach because he had said he would end fracking. He has now spent six months walking that back and saying we need fracking. And and again, I think a smart line that we need fracking as a transition to a better future. You know, we'll have the fracking until until we get all these billions of jobs that we're going to get through the through through greenery. The memo, by the way, on the civil unrest has gone round because Pelosi yesterday also went, took to the floor of the House and was saying, oh, we really don't like this violence and looting, whereas a month ago she was saying, oh, you know, people do things, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so clearly they're getting the message that they, they have to now suddenly seem like responsible law and order types. And I mean, I because we've been following this, I, I find that the worst sort of you know hypocrisy because they're not actually doing anything. They're just saying the right words. But uh, right. we needed the right words when it was happening, not now. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that was the great setup, right? Was um, that uh, Biden clearly knew <clears throat> that this guy, this uh, former police chief from Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, was in the crowd because the guy said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm the, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm on the Wilkes-Barre City Council, but I was the police chief. And he goes, he's like, I met you. I Remember, I knew you. <laughs> I met you. Remember, we met sometime. Well, how would he remember meeting the, you know, it's not his state. It's one thing if he were a senator from Pennsylvania, which I know he wants people to think he is, but of course he wasn't. So clearly he knew, they knew that that guy was there, was going to ask the, you know, I'm a law enforcement person. I don't like the way people are treating law enforcement. Um, so that's where you start getting into the, What's going on there with CNN and the yeah. Biden campaign? You know, is this like Obama get knowing that Cindy Crowley had the had the text of something in her? What was it that Cindy Crowley had the text of during the second debate when when he said, "Cindy, go to the you know get that document out uh, to prove that I'm right about this." Like, how did he know that Cindy right, Crowley and had that document? questions ahead of time? I mean, this is this has been going yeah. on for a long time. <laughs>
All right. Well, uh, we are we are approaching the one hour mark here, so so I don't want to bore you uh, too much further. I hope uh, again, Shana Tova Umetuka for everybody uh, who is celebrating the Jewish New Year uh, tonight and over the weekend, and uh, for Abe, Christine, and the absent Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.